Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to discuss the start of the 2021 Major League Soccer season is a man who, as far as I can tell, spent the pandemic preparing for this MLS season, but also crafting <laughs> unique and interesting cocktails. It's Matt Doyle. Hi, Matt. Mm. How you doing, man? Uh, so I will say that the, the cocktails are unique, but I don't think they end up being interesting ah. because at the core of all of it, uh-huh. it it's just... I substitute mezcal in <laughs> for whatever the, the appropriate base spirit is. That That is like, I, again, unique is, is applicable. Interesting. Like I think after the fourth one, it just stops being that at all. And it starts being completely predictable. See, I see it the other way around, which is that to me, you have a, this concept probably already exists of like mezcal replacing bourbon in a Manhattan mezcal replacing tequila in a margarita. Like I feel like you could go through every single drink and just substitute mezcal and then you have the mezcal bar. So maybe that's what you can do uh, if, if ever you get tired of talking about soccer for a living. I, that sounds like a good gig to me. And I will say this for, for the listeners out here, the two absolute best substitutions are uh, Mezcal Negroni. So you just substitute the Mezcal for the gin. And a very obvious one is a Mezcal Paloma. Paloma is a great drink no matter what type of tequila you use. But if you add Mezcal instead, uh, it just elevates it to like – Michael Bradley versus Club Leon type level. <laughs> that would be a perfect segue because I do want to ask you about Toronto. I do want to ask you about Michael Bradley, but I want to continue to ask you about cocktails instead because the thing with Mezcal, Mezcal has the smoke, right? And I can't like same oh, yeah. thing with Scotch. I like is there a way to appreciate the smoke such that it becomes a feature? Because for me, it's a, it's sort of a drawback. But I realize that that is a, an unsophisticated palate speaking. Uh, I don't know if that makes it unsophisticated. It's just a, a different type of palate. Like for me, I have I have no love of bourbon because it's too sweet for me. Like uh-huh. I, I just can't enjoy it. And I've never been able to get myself to a point where I can. And maybe that's the same way with you with with uh, smoky drinks. Yeah. But like my my intro to scotch 20 odd years ago now was like just the basic like doers or you know Johnny Walker Black was like a like a special treat and from there for whatever reason I was able to develop a taste for it um and then that taste just grew more and more uh you know down the smoky side of the you know of the island until I was basically living in Isla which is <laughs> like all the smoky scotches come from one little island in on the southwest part of, of Scotland, um, and then if you go up to the Hebrides, um, which is up northwest, that's more like almost like saltier, earthier. I don't know the right way to to describe it. Um, boy, we we really could go on about cocktails. Yeah, for a welcome while, to we? uh, uh, cocktail talk uh, here on the Total Soccer Show. That's how <laughs> we're going to persist. We will get to some soccer in a little bit, but thinking about how many people you all have. Uh, uh, participating in the show at any given moment. And obviously this was like maybe even more of a thing when you all were recording in person. But I am wondering who runs late the most often? Who is the one who most regularly is like, I need another 30 minutes to make sure I'm ready to go. Or is it pretty much everybody's ready on time? No, there's a word for it or a term for it. We call it weeby time. Okay. (laughs) So if, if, if if the, you know, if the, if the, if the meeting is 1030 uh-huh. um, and, and you're going to be 20 minutes late, you just send a text to the group. I'm running on Weeby time and everybody <laughs> knows what that means. Now, I will say that has changed a little bit mm. in the last few years because uh, he's a parent now. So he has to be ah. much more regimented with his schedule. You probably know something about this. Um, and the new, the new front runner is Kalen Carr. Okay. Kalen, uh. It, you know, Kalen was a was a a first to training, last to leave type of guy as a player. Um, as a as a as an extra time member, uh, he is not that. I do think now that you mention it, when we were there, like watching you all in studio, he did show up as I think we were all going to lunch and was sort of like not <laughs> sure if he had missed something, but was also a little bit like, and eh, if I did, I did. Such is life. So I, I yeah. like I like that answer. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy, California, laid back, Bay Area type of guy. And that makes him kind of wonderful to work with. All right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to ask him about his uh, his preparation patterns and how he gets ready for things <laughs> at another time. But for now, we should talk a little bit of Major League Soccer. We should talk a little bit of CONCACAF Champions League because 
Uh, Columbus has not yet played at time of recording, but seems very likely to advance to the quarterfinals. So we're going to have five of the eight, I believe, if my math is correct, uh, will be from Major League Soccer, which is a big development and to me leads to a very big question that like could maybe be the, the entirety of this show. We'll see how long you want to go with it, Matt. But I'm essentially wondering how this has happened because I know there are many different answers. I know like some of these clubs weren't able to get visas for certain players and have not had the financial success to weather some of the, some of the pandemic era. Major League Soccer, though, the same goes for them. And it's always been the sort of like, hopefully we can get a team into the quarterfinals. Hopefully we can get a team into the semifinals. Maybe we'll get one of the finals. And now we're guaranteed to have at least one MLS uh, team in the final or excuse me, in the semifinal. So I guess I'm wondering, with all that said, if you were to kind of break down a few of the key ways this has happened, what might they be? Tam and the homegrown initiative. And that's the end of the list. Okay. It, it's really, it's really those two. It's like a before and after thing. Um, you know, I think MLS teams up until 2017, all time, had won two two-legged ties against Liga MX teams. Since 2018, which is really when the big influx of TAM came, um, and really when we saw a ton more homegrowns getting minutes. I mean, that was the year. That Tyler Adams and Alfonso Davies were both sold to, um, to, to you know Bayern Munich and RB Leipzig. Um, since then, MLS teams I think now are seven and eight against uh, against Liga MX teams and two legged ties in in uh, in Concacaf Champions League, and like five of those eight losses are against either Tigres or Monterey, who have dominated this this series. So I. I think like the, the the criticism of MLS all along was that we can't we can't really compete on an even footing yep. in in the Champions League because well first of all the time of year is just bad for MLS teams second of all it's that we we just after the first five roster slots it's just a different ball game in terms of the total talent level. And the homegrown initiative where we are now developing players who could step out there, like what we saw with Aiden Morris or the Philly homegrowns or obviously the Toronto homegrowns, that addressed it or is addressing it in one way. And Tam was specifically created to address it in another way. So I think that, like, com- I don't want to say completely, that largely narrowed the gap between MLS and Liga MX while creating a gap between MLS and um, Central American teams that I, I don't I don't think that gap is going to grow smaller. I think that gap is go, is growing to, to grow larger in the years to come. And like it, it, it really does come down to those two things like 95%. So if we're crediting Tam and Gam with like amongst other things giving MLS teams greater depth to be able to participate in these competitions my next question becomes another broad one when you're looking at the I think is it 900 teams that are now playing in Major League Soccer this season I forget the exact number Uh, (laughs) yeah Uh, when when you're looking at at the teams this season who do you think have like has more depth than others who do you think has the least depth of some of the teams we're going to be talking about well, I mean, if we want to hold it to this to this CCL group, um, I, I w- everybody would have said Columbus have the mm-hmm. most depth out of all these teams because not only did they have a, a, a great team last year that ended up winning MLS Cup despite losing two key starters in, in Pedro Santos and Darlington Nagby right before the game, to, they lost them to you know COVID protocols, um, like. They had the depth to do that, and then we, we've kind of entered the ring-chasing era of MLS free agency, so that meant they were able to sign Bradley Wright Phillips and Kevin Molino as free agents. And neither of those guys is, is actually a starter. Um, and then they were able to, to sign another homegrown kid, Parente from Wake Forest, who, who's gotten on the field already for them and, and you know gives them depth at a, a couple of spots. So Columbus, I think, were the team – Everyone expected to have the depth to to you know weather the early rounds and the top end talent to at least put the fear of God into Monterey in the next round, um, while at the same time competing at the top of 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 the league. The 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 shock 
is that Philadelphia sold two homegrown players, best 11 players in Aronson and McKenzie, had their starting right back, Ray Gaddis, who was the all-time leader in appearances, he retired. That's three starters gone. Then they in like not replacing the transfer market. And then they had a bunch of injuries on their front line. Um, you know, guys like uh, Sergio Santos, who was a starter last year, and Corey Burke, who was a difference maker and a starter the year before that. And, and then Jack DeVries, who was the homegrown forward who was supposed to be the next one up. He got hurt, too. All those guys were unavailable. And they absolutely smoked Saprisa. 5 nil mm-hmm. over two legs. And that Saprisa team is filled with MLS veterans. It's filled with uh, young Costa Ricans you know, who are filtering into the national team program for them. And they are the most successful uh, Central American team of all time. Philly was supposed to struggle against them. Like not only like even before the injuries, just replacing Aronson, McKenzie and Gaddis, that was supposed to be really hard. And they made it look so damn easy over 180 minutes that, like, I had to rethink my entire union season preview mm-hmm. as to what as to what their upside is because of, of what they did and how comfortable they looked doing it in the situation and the environment that they faced in these first two games. And this is a Philly team that was not long ago. If not the, then one of the most like maligned teams mocked for the way they were operating. And now here we are with them just apparently having a talent production factory. How have they been so effective at producing and bringing through young talent? Who are you giving the credit to for that one? I mean, it's a cultural thing, right? It, it, it's a, it happens from the ground up. It's a grassroots thing in a, in a way, but it also has to be top down. You need ownership and a front office that really buys into that. And um, in Philly, they have that. In Philly, like It's more than just buying into that. It's like who they are. And then at the same time, they have in, in Jim Curtin, a guy who I think is one of the handful of very – like the among the very best MLS coaches – um, and, and he's shown that with the work he did with the Philly Academy 10 years ago. And he's shown that with what he's done at the first team level, because remember two years ago, three years ago now, when Philly first started being like a, a 55 point team, a team that who you think, Oh, you know, maybe they can make a little noise in the playoff. They were like a strictly possession team. They looked like Greg Burhalter's crew. And then Ernst Tanner, the new GM, got there, and he was like, no, we're going to play modern German transition soccer. It's going to be very attritional. And when I saw that, I was like, Jim Curtin's going to get fired. The <laughs> new GM is going to want his new guys and wants to play a brand new style. And Jim Curtin had him go out the next year and play – like they looked like a Red Bulls team. Um, so it, like the, the fact that he has the flexibility to do that, he can keep veterans like Ilsenio and Ale Bedoya – bought in and at the same time get guys like McKenzie and Aronson and now Anthony Fontana and Leon Flock and you know McGlynn and Sullivan and the rest of the, the homegrowns through. It's really impressive. It, it is it is just super impressive. And that type of culture and that type of stability, I mean it's worth more than any DP. When you say he's one of the best coaches in the league, do you think to have that title are there, is it like if you were like putting in subcategories to best best coach of the league, do those subcategories look different than it would for other leagues in the world because MLS has the different roster requirements and they have the homegrown policy? Like, do, do you have to have different things than you might elsewhere to be a successful major league soccer coach? Or is it fundamentally just about getting the tactics right, getting your team prepared as they need to be, and then making sure that talent is nurtured and brought through? Is it, is it more simple than I'm letting it be, basically? I, it might be, but I, I, it, it, I don't know if simple is the right word, but it, I think it probably is more si- is similar to mm-hmm. what we see over, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to compare it to like the EPL because that's the, the money that they, yeah. that they have that it just makes it a world of difference. But like with the Bundesliga, every team other than Bayern Munich is a selling team. So you're, you're very much balancing the need to win. Um, and the implications culturally of that with the need to continue to promote young players into the first team and the financial realities of that. And it feels like that's what Jim Curtin is doing. So there's like 
the cultural aspect, which is like, here's how the, the team operates the strategic aspect, which is like looking at the, you know, the, the scope of the season and being like, okay, here's where we're going to need to rest guys. Here's what our long-term goals are. And then the tactical aspect, which is like, I have to pick the right 11 this week or the right 16, including subs and make the right subs and have the right game plan. So balancing all of that while keeping the locker room together, I do think that's applicable overseas. And obviously what Jesse Marsh is doing, going from MLS to, you know, six months as an assistant to now a head coach for RB Salzburg. I think that's a pretty good indication that that skill set as a manager is transferable. All right, so Jim Curtin to RB Salzburg when Jesse Marsh leaves, confirmed. Thanks, Matt Doyle. Um, <laughs> in terms of the questions he does still have to answer for this season, uh, one that I heard you discussing last night uh, on the – is it Spaces, by the way? I called it Space earlier with, when I was talking yeah, to Levy, and I got it wrong. We, yeah, we can't – like, they're called Twitter Spaces, mm-hmm. but it's it's really weird to be like, hey, are you doing the space after the game? <laughs> like, doing the, like, doing yeah. the, like that's – it sounds like a, a bad 60s term for doing drugs. Like, you want to do the space after the oh, game, really man? Does. Like, yeah. It, it, it's terrible. You've had way so too much space we, these days, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, it's great. It really is fun because, like, people ask us to do those, like, the quick take, hot take stuff, and sometimes I think – like, really? Do you guys want to hear that? And then I listen to you all, and I'm like, oh, yeah, of course you do. Because it's like you're listening to your friends talk about games, but then you get to be part of it. Other people are part of it. It is really fun, but it also raises interesting questions. One that you were, uh, if not grappling with, that at least bringing up was the issue of Montero uh, for Philly looking very good as both a number eight and a number 10. Uh, Montero uh, could, uh, excuse me, yeah, it's Montero could be a number eight, Fontana could be the number 10, then Montero could be a 10, or Fontana could be a forward. I made that way more confusing than it needed to be, but basically I'm wondering what you think that attack is going to look like given the depth of talent that Jim Curtin has at his disposal. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear at this point that they're going to try to make it look like last year in one way or another. Um, And and by that I mean they are going to press. It's not going to be as high and hard as I think the Red Bulls press, but they are clearly going to press um, and they're going to try to play in transition a ton. It's going to be much less knocking the ball around, which is the version of of Philly that we saw in like 2018 and a little bit in 2019. It is very vertical. Um, I, I think Montero plays that way. And I think he's the best number 10 on that team. And that's no disrespect to Anthony Fontana, who was wonderful last night and, um, is clearly a starting caliber player, but he he just adds more in terms of his ability to carry the ball, um, draw defenders to him, and then hit telling passes. Fontana doesn't really have that to me, but I think the the way that I I imagine I don't know this, but like I imagine that the part of of the way Philadelphia waits these decisions internally is like, well, we're a selling club, explicitly so, and. If Anthony Fontana is playing as a number 10 and he scores 11 goals and adds nine assists, we could sell him for five and a half million dollars. Whereas if he's playing as a second forward in a 4-4-2, we might only be able to sell him for $1.5 million. And I think that is I think that's what happened with Brendan Aronson last year. I don't think Brendan Aronson is remotely a number 10. And it doesn't shock me at all that he's playing on the wing. For Salzburg and now for the the U.S. national team, I, I just think like if you have a 19 year old number 10 playing for a really good team, you are going to be able to go out and get more on the transfer market for him than if you have a 19 year old winger or a 19 year old shoveler or even a 19 year old second forward. That is well said. So a strong performance from uh, Philly. We would expect more of that from them this season. Uh, I would say the same goes for Toronto. Toronto FC getting the win last night over Leon, so they advance as well. They do so with, I think, roughly five of the 11 players in the lineup being actual starters, or who we would expect to be their starters. Uh, Of the ones who are not their normal starters, who do you think impressed the most? Who looked the most like they could become an eventual starter for TFC this season? I, I think that a lot of them are going to have to start from time to time just because of squad rotation and the fact that guys like Michael Bradley, Omar Gonzalez um, are, are are older and, and you can't play them 50 times this year and expect their legs to hold up. Uh, but Luke Singh, the young left or left center back, uh, he played against Claude Leon, which are the reigning Liga MX champs, and he didn't put a foot wrong. Like there was nothing special about his performance in terms of jumping off the page 
but that's kind of a special performance yeah. from a 20-year-old center back in his first game with the first team. So I, I thought that was great. Ralph Preso obviously making you know the the series turning play by by pressing and, and winning the ball on that second goal and then playing the pass as well. Um, you know, he's a, a, to me, he looks like a very classic sort of uh, bulldog defensive midfielder. There is always room for a guy like that, hmm. uh, especially next to, you know, an aging kind of box to box guy in Michael Bradley. Uh, and then the third one, Noble Akello, um, he, like <laughs> talk about talent that jumps off the page. He's so smooth mm-hmm. and he makes plays. He makes plays in the final third that are just. Um, I'm not going to call them visionary, but they they kind of they change the game. And he needs to work on his, his defensive instincts a little bit, and his fitness is clearly not there. Uh, but for 45 minutes last night, he was spectacular to watch. Are there any players that they sort of can't afford to have injured or to miss substantial periods of time? Like I'm assuming Michael Bradley would be in that conversation. I would have put Josie Altador in there, except that it does seem to be a somewhat regular occurrence. But who are the players that you think would be most detrimental if they're out for, say, two or three months? Well, I, I would have said the, the two by far were Alejandro Pozuelo and, and Chris Mavinga. And they just beat Club León, <laughs> getting zero minutes from Alejandro Pozuelo. All right. And, and Chris Mavinga. So, so the like, answer is no one. TFC answer, winning MLS Cup confirmed. Got it. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> but no, it's, it's like it, it really is a testament to, to what we were talking about at the at the top of this segment. Like two two three years ago, there would have been no replacing those guys against almost any CCL opponent. In this one, they they just beat the the Liga MX reigning champions in CCL without the, the league MVP. And their best defender like that, that is kind of unprecedented for MLS. And it does make it all feel like we've kind of entered a new era. Well, that new era continues to feature uh, Michael Bradley, who we already mentioned previously. He also (laughs) remains a polarizing figure if Twitter has is any indicator as to his performance last night. But I'm inclined to say that's like pretty much entirely based on his tenure with the national team, specifically the failure to qualify at Cuba. But then also just the age old question of like, does he do enough? Is he good enough? And I don't really want to relitigate that stuff. Mostly what I'm asking, what I'd like to ask you, Matt, is are there other things that I've missed that makes him such a polarizing or difficult figure for certain people? I'm assuming it is mostly U.S. national team, but I also don't know if there are other factors in there that I've missed. Well, I mean, he was polarizing amongst the Metro Stars fan base back in the in the mid 2000s when he first really when when he first yeah when he first became a professional and the, you know he he was a starter as a 16 year old and uh, a lot of the fan base felt like he that. was only starting be- because his, yeah they they felt like he was only starting because his dad was the head coach and that was frankly a very stupid opinion held by a lot of very stupid people and then it transferred over to the U.S. national team two years later because Bob Bradley was a head coach and Michael Bradley was, you know, one of our best midfielders. He started a lot of games and a a lot of people felt like that it was only because of nepotism. Um, And that was, that kind of started, like he, like that colored the entire tenure uh, of Michael Bradley with the the U.S. national team, and now I would say things got uglier after he came back to MLS, and that was in part because I, I don't like I think the role he was being asked to play by Jurgen Klinsmann was insanity, and then it got even uglier um, after Kuva, and, and like that was like we played a wide diamond on the road in World Cup qualifying when all we needed to do was, was get a point. Like there, there was no reason to play anything but a four-two-three-one that game, but we played a wide diamond, and so Michael Bradley had to go one v three in central midfield all game, and that you know we lost, and he was the captain, so of course there was some vitriol, um, but it, it goes back to, to before this kid could vote, um, and it's it, it's kind of unfairly colored uh, the way his career has been perceived, and I would say. Some of that probably goes for Josie Altador as well, who obviously did not play last night due to a hamstring issue. 
uh, either incorporating that in or prior to that happening, what were your expectations for him uh, with Toronto this season? Do you think, uh, put it this way, do you think he's going to finish the season in Toronto? Is he there until he retires? Or do you think we may see Josie move on and Toronto go a different direction at some point? I don't, I don't think Josie is movable okay. within the league. I think that, that contract is so big and like he's, he's had some great playoff runs for Toronto, but he hasn't had a great season. He like he's only played more than two thousand minutes in, in a regular season with Toronto once, and he's been there five six years. So I, I don't I don't think he's movable within the league. I, I would be surprised if there were any takers uh, overseas either. So I, I think I think he's with Toronto. Um, and the good news is though, with with that academy being so prolific, like we saw Jordan Perlusa last night. Um, he's an academy forward. And of course, they have Io Akinola getting healthy, and we all saw what Io Akinola could do. Last, I mean, Io Akinola, same age as Daryl DK, he scored at a better rate in MLS last year than Daryl DK did. So he's that type of talent. So once they have these guys, you know, healthy and fit and, and acclimated, then Josie's health status, whether he can play ninety minutes anymore, it's not like it, it's not a make or break thing for Toronto, and that kind of saves them from what would otherwise be a very nervous time, uh, given that one of their DPs is so fragile. So that makes sense. The Akinola being the same age as Daryl DK thing, while it does make sense, is also still confusing. And there are, there are like a few different players like that. Uh, Jean-Luc Abusio is a key one for me, where like, if you ask me how old he is, like I would know, I could probably figure it out, but I feel like at first I'd say like, oh, he's like 23, right? Because he's just been around <laughs> for so long. He's actually 18. I'm sure lots of people know that one, but it still blows my mind. Uh, my mind, plural, my mind, why not? Uh, for Busio this season, since I brought him up randomly, uh, what, what would you like to see him improve the most this year? Because he does seem like one who's reaching that age where maybe he'll be there for a few more years, but maybe somebody else comes in and wants to acquire him at the end of the year, something like that. So what would make his game just better all around? And what do you think he is already particularly good at? I I think he has a very good engine um, and he has very good feet. I I don't think that his feet are are incredible, but like they're very, very good. And you can see why he's always been an attacker. Um, He also has a like very hard. It looks like a very heavy shot Uh, makes it difficult for goalkeepers to save. Um, what he needs to, to improve upon, like above and beyond everything else combined, he needs to complete more dangerous passes in the final third. Like I have questioned him being a number 10, being like thought of as a number 10, because he like he passes the ball pretty timidly at times uh, in, in especially in the final third, like those. Those positions where if it's a number 10, um, you're like, oh, man, we're dead. This guy is going to put the ball on a platter for whoever his forward is. Like, Gianluca Busio hasn't shown a lot of that. Not just in limited minutes with, with Sporting Kansas City. I would argue he didn't show a lot of that with the U.S. Youth, youth national teams, where he was almost always played as a number 10 or at the very least an attacking winger. Um, so I've, like, I've always questioned it with Gianluca Busio, like why he's regarded as – this type of talent he clearly has the individual skills to to be that guy um but like the the number one thing for that position is chance creation and he's like i've never seen it from him if he does improve that if like he, he flicks a switch and there it is um then like maybe it's the the next brendan aronson maybe this kid will get sold for nine ten million dollars to a Champions League club. But from where I'm sitting and from what I've seen of the kid over the past four years, um, that's a massive if. How much of that lack of chance creation relates to the players around him or sometimes not around him? Because like Alan Polito is a player that I would have thought was going to come in and set the league alight and score a ton of goals. Instead, he misses minutes both for national team duty and due to injury. If he has like a stronger squad around him, do you expect him to have a stronger squad around him this season? And if so, do you think Busio is capable of kind of turning it up a little bit when it comes to those chance creation possibilities? I mean, that's literally the multi-million dollar question. Uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just haven't seen enough of it yet. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, and I would I would think that that having guys like like Polito and and Johnny Russell even Kyrie Shelton around like Kyrie Shelton's really good off the ball he like his runs make the pass 
because he, he just pulls guys out of position. He's always finding space. Same with Russell on the other side. Um, like if you have that around you, you should be able to start sort of letting their skill set amplify your own. Um, and then that can create a kind of a positive feedback loop between a number 10 and his wingers. Like what we saw with Minnesota last year with Babella Reynoso. Um, is it going to happen? I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I do not know. I, I, I will say as an MLS fan and a U.S. national team fan, I sure hope it does. Well, I'll ask you another open-ended question, but this one, but this time you can attack uh, a colleague of yours. Because since you mentioned Minnesota United, over at The Athletic, uh, Jeff Reuter has Minnesota winning the West this season. He also has Reynoso being the MVP. If you had to choose, which of those two is more likely? Uh, Minnesota United winning the West or Reynoso being the league MVP? Uh Boy, they kind of go hand in hand. Like if if one happens, then like the other almost. Well, I guess I'll say Minnesota winning the West is is the likelier of the two. Right now, I have them second or third in the West. Um, al- you know, along with Portland, just just behind LAFC. But um, you know, and I think LAFC have a chance to be historically great. I don't I don't think Minnesota's at that level where they they have that kind of chance. But they do have a chance to be really, really, really good. And if LAFC slips and um, you know Portland gets too bogged down or, or just too old all of a sudden, then that opens a, a pretty clear path for them uh, for, for Minnesota to the, to the top of the Western Conference. As for Babello, like he he was amazing. He was absolutely amazing. Um, but it's a it's a pretty stacked MVP race field. Uh, just looking at it from the start this year, Pozuelo, obviously Vela and Joseph are healthy again. Zellerayan, if he stays healthy and does what he did last year in the playoffs, uh, Nico Ladero is always there as well. So, like, it's th- that one could end up being a bloodbath in a very good way. So, if Minnesota were to be in the competition for the top of the Western Conference, like what are the margins? What are the things that have to go well? I, you mentioned LAFC and Seattle maybe having downturns in form, but who are the players that need to sort of hit the ground running and stay running for them to stay atop the West? I mean, Wanchope Avila is is the obvious answer because um, you know they, they went out and they they spent a little bit of money on him as a. You know, not quite a DP number nine, but a high-end TAM number nine. He was a starter at Boca Juniors. You know, like this is a type of guy who you would think would come in and if not quite tear up the league, at least be, you know, a top 20% of the starting number nines in the league. That's one. And then the other one is the central defense. Like it, it kind of went under-remarked last year that Minnesota lost Icopara for the season. And as soon as Ike was out, I was like, Minnesota's done. Because mm-hmm. Ike Opara was a one-man wrecking crew in 2019. Um, you know, it seemed like single-handedly hoisting this team out of their their uh, previous ineptitude. And I, once he was out, I was like, this team, they're just going to be steamrolled. And they weren't. And Michael Boxall w- was excellent. And um, Bakai Dabasi, the, the, the French center back they got, he was very good as well. Those guys are both in their 30s. Um, they both need to, to be excellent once again. They need to stay young because while they, there is some depth behind them, it's not proven, and I don't think it's high level. Um, so they need to find another year in their legs uh, and play a lot like they did last year. So we, we've covered some distance so far. We've been west and north. I think we've been all over. We're going to keep that one going because I've got like a few player-specific questions. I wanted to start with uh, Real Salt Lake. Uh, Bobby Wood is joining. I know that much. Uh, maybe that's happening sooner than expected, I think. I don't know that for sure, but I think that. What's the latest in terms of Bobby Wood to RSL? So his the, the signing is official. Mm-hmm. Um, if he had seen out his contract with... Uh, with Hamburg, he would not have been able to come until the summer transfer window, which opens, I don't want to say July 7th. Um, but because he and Hamburg just split, um, I assume there were some financial considerations there on both sides, uh, he can now join and, in fact, has joined them for this window. However, uh, his wife is about to give birth, so he's attending to that. Um, and then he has a couple of weeks 
I think, of quarantine um, before he can join the team as per I don't know whether that's state rules or league rules. I guess I should know that. Um, but either way, we won't see him until early May at the very earliest. Uh, but that's that's fine. You know, RSL are off this weekend. They're off opening weekend. They don't play. Um, so, like, they might be only in their, like, third game of the year before Bobby Wood is available, which is a lot better than being in your 13th game of the year before Bobby Wood is available. So it, yeah, it does seem out. to have worked out. Yeah, and I'm like I, I'm I'm happy to see him in MLS. He's still, you know, in his late 20s. I think he's 28 years old. He should have some good years left and it's been a while since he got regular run with any team. So, you know, fingers crossed that we get a bit of a redemption arc here. And you've kind of already answered it there, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, like, what do you think he brings to this RSL team? Or is it just sort of too difficult to know? Because though we know fundamentally what he brings from his time with the U.S. and with other teams in Germany, it has been a while since I feel like we saw him with the regularity, as you mentioned, that we need to properly evaluate. But broadly speaking, do you have an idea of what he'll do for this RSL team, where he'll play? I'm assuming he'll be a striker as opposed to a goalkeeper, but more so I like mean, what <laughs> his role might be. I mean, he's got to be their center forward, mm-hmm. right? Like, like that's that's the only position he's ever really played effectively for any team at any level. And w- what we saw of him in Germany was he was a very good two Bundesliga center forward for a long time, and he wasn't quite good enough to be like a regular starting Bundesliga center forward. And that's fine. Like that's about where MLS is. Um, so you would think the level wouldn't be too much for him, even though the last two two and a half years he's been a non-factor like he, he just hasn't for whatever reason and i guess the reason is probably the the contract the massive contract that he signed and maybe some resentment in the team about that um he hasn't he hasn't played and when he has played he, he hasn't played well um so there does need to be that little know, spark that reignites mm-hmm. his career uh you know it, makes sense for RSL to take a flyer on him given his age he, you know he, he's still in his prime and uh, given their needs like they haven't had a starting center forward since Alvaro Saborio more than a half decade ago so it's it checks a bunch of boxes um, but it is very far from a sure thing you know he he might just be cooked so like some of the phrases there they took a flyer on him he needs to spark he hasn't had a ton of opportunities it like he could be done. All of this also feels like we're talking about Pato at Orlando City. So let's talk about him <laughs> as well. Uh, he is still capable of playing soccer, correct? From what we saw in the preseason, yeah, he he had a nice little highlight reel. Yeah. So yeah, it looks like he could still play soccer. And what do you think happens with Daryl DK now that they have Pato? Is he being looked at as like a potential replacement, though they are not the same player at all? Like, how do you think Daryl DK's? What do you think Daryl DK's situation will be for Orlando this season? I think he he will be a twenty million dollar lottery ticket for them. You think like they they? Yeah, I, I think they hit the lotto. I, I like it. it like he's I, I had maybe it won't be twenty. Maybe it will be fifteen or sixteen or something like that. Um, I, I would have taken the offer when it was reported at 10 yeah. because, uh, you know, he doesn't have a, a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of minutes it's like, it's not a huge sample size and he has overperformed his expected goals and, and most strikers don't, don't consistently do it. Like Messi doesn't overperform his expected goals. It's like the expected goals are, are pretty dialed in. Um, but so far he like so far Daryl DK is consistently doing that, and I mostly believe the reports that there are some big money offers for him out there. So I think that a deal will get done with some EPL team, um, and for now Pato will be one of a rotation of guys replacing Daryl DK. Obviously, in a very different way, he plays a much different style. Um, what it means long term. I don't know. You know, Orlando City might take that, you know, take their winnings from selling Daryl DK and go out on the transfer market this summer or, you know, next winter. But for the short run, I, I, I think we've seen the last of Daryl DK in an Orlando City kit. 
Are you surprised that that's the case? Because that was a move, I will be honest, that when it happened, I was like, okay, like, I guess that's good. It gives him like a little bit of time to get some more reps. Like, I, I thought it was going to be similar to what happened with Paul Ariola at Swansea is kind of where I was with it. And yet here we are with it going very, mm. very well and him scoring tons of goals. Uh, I, I give you more credit than I give myself when it comes to evaluating <laughs> players and knowing what's going to happen with them. What were your expectations for this move and how, well, I guess not even how do you think it's worked out? But yeah, just did you see this coming? I thought he would manhandle, you know, championship defenses because there there aren't there aren't a lot of high level center backs there uh, for, from what I've seen. And Cameron granted, Carter I don't Vickers watch it. Would like a word with you, sir. He he tries real hard, does Cameron Carter Vickers, <laughs> and I respect that. Um, so I, I thought that I thought that he would be too much for them physically, and and he has been. But what he's shown um, is the ability to improve upon. Uh, one one of the things that was lacking last year, which was uh, his kind of his, his off the ball movement in the final third. Like he, he's never had those killer instincts as a goal scorer. Uh, he's been effective and he's always been really polished and smart in his hold up play. But he's never been like a super goal hungry number nine. And what we're seeing out of him with Barnsley is that he like he has been ruthless not just in finishing, but in making those runs to get into the right spots to finish. And if you have that combined with like his his you know his ball skills and then his his obvious physicality, um, he's he has exceeded my expectations. And uh, you know if you're if you're Orlando City's brass, you're probably singing "We're in the Money" every <laughs> single day because this is this is going to be a, a big move for the kid. All right, so Orlando City have uh, lots of different irons and lots of different fires, and it sounds like they're enjoying life. Further north, uh, I'm, this is going to be the question, Matt, and you can do with it as you please. NYCFC? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm so confused about this team. Yeah, so like they moved on. From Matarita and, and Alex Ring, who were two top five starters at their positions in MLS, and fair enough because they they felt like they had um, more than adequate replacements uh, in in James Sands, and then uh, you know the the Icelandic kid they signed to play left back, and it, it, you can cons- you can think of that in the way that you think of Philadelphia not going out on the transfer market and spending big to replace Aronson and, and McKenzie. Um, like it can be done in this league if you have depth and the culture that, that prizes that depth and the uh, culture that prizes youth development. The bigger question is like, what, what is happening on that front line? Because Eber's still hurt. And that means the only center forward is Tate Castellanos, but he's also arguably your best left winger. Uh, and, like the, your own, your best right winger is, is Ishmael Tajiri Strade. He's fantastic when he's healthy, but he's healthy 14 games a year. It, and then your only number 10 is still Maxi Morales, who missed more than half of last year with various injuries, and he's 34. And like this is not this is this was not the off season that NYCFC fans expected their team to have. Uh, and it sounded like from a, a couple of quotes last month, it was not the type of offseason that Ronnie Diala expected this team to have. Like he straight up said, we need more talent. Um, and now they've added a couple of pieces. They sent in, uh, another academy kid, Andres uh, Jassen, who, who was part of that, the same cohort as, as Gio Reyna. Um, and then they signed a, another uh, Brazilian winger. So they do have a little more depth on the wings now. Uh, but there are still massive questions at the nine and the 10. And if you have massive questions there, um, you yeah. might be in trouble. You might be in, you might be in a little bit of trouble. Uh, right now, NYCFC uh, is in trouble. They're currently 10th. They're out of the playoff spots, and that is totally down to performance and not at all alphabetical order. Uh, do you think <laughs> that they will be safely in the playoffs, competing for the playoffs, or on the outside looking in at the end of the season? So I, I had them in our preseason predictions. I, I had them on the outside looking in. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just like if you look at the, mm. the top of the Eastern Conference, everybody got better. Columbus got better. New England got better. 
Toronto probably got better just by virtue of having those kids come through the academy. Uh, I don't think Philadelphia got better. Well, I didn't anyway. And then I saw them play the last two games, and now I might have changed my mind. Atlanta got significantly better. Um, it, it it becomes a lot. I mean, Nashville got better. Like it, it is a lot to to expect this NYCFC team with almost no reinforcements to go out there and produce another season at you know 1.6, 1.7 points per game, which is what it takes to get into the playoffs. So we've got lots of different teams. We've got a lot of player movement. All of that said, my final couple questions for you, Matt. The first one would be, with uh, the season kicking off this weekend, if people are interested in Major League Soccer, if they don't already have a team, if they don't already have a reason to watch, what would be the games that you would say they should check out? Are there any sort of like particular clashes that you have in mind as being good examples of what the season will hold? So... One of the most fascinating teams to me is the San Jose Earthquakes, just because I, I love the, the chaos of Matias Almeida's style on, on both sides. Like his man marking system gets a lot of pub, but if you watch the way they play, um, they make the most off ball runs in the entire league, as per our second spectrum tracking data. Um, and they they make the field really big, and they play attractive soccer. They're the first game of the year. They they go to Houston uh, on on Friday night at 8 p.m. Uh, to to play the Dynamo, and then later on that night, Seattle versus Minnesota, um, and that's on FS1 uh, at 9:30. That one is a rematch of last year's Western Conference Final, uh, which was one of the all-time great playoff games. Like those, two, you can't do better than starting the MLS season with those two games, um, and then the other one. Like I, I think LAFC is easily the most fun team in the league to watch. They open up on on uh, Saturday afternoon, and that one's on Fox. Actually, you don't even need a cable to watch that one. Uh, they open up on Saturday uh, evening, I should say, about six p.m. against Austin. That's like circle that one in your calendar. And if you're a fan of chaos and the unpredictable, would it be DC United versus NYCFC? Would it be Inter Miami versus the LA Galaxy? What would be the game where sort of anything could happen? Oh, Inter Miami versus LA Galaxy. Right. That, that is, that is, that is, yeah. I mean, that's the Beckham Bowl, but it's also the the Chaos Bowl, and that one, <laughs> like, like that one's on on ABC. So that one's on on Sunday, uh, three p.m. on ABC. Mm-hmm. Inter Miami hosts the LA Galaxy. Uh, I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> yep. What do you expect from that game? Uh, I See, I would assume a Galaxy win, but I think that's just because it's the Galaxy and because Inter-Miami have been all over the place. Have they solved the 4DP thing yet, by the way? <laughs> like, I asked Sam that on Tuesday, I think. Uh, and at time yeah. reporting, they had not. Not not as of now <laughs> that I've seen. Not as of now. Uh, they got a solid, like, 24 hours to get that done. <laughs> Oh my god! Nothing like procrastinating. I, I can actually relate to that. So I, I, mean, I guess I can too. But yeah, I think I think it's just I would lean Galaxy. I think just because uh, yeah, I think Greg Vanny like will have a plan and he'll have people buying in. Uh, by all accounts, I know that Phil Neville has totally gotten everybody to buy in. I saw all those reports, but I just I just still think there are so many moving parts and non-moving parts on occasion with Inter-Miami that I don't know if they're going to hit the ground running. I don't know if they're going to quite gel uh, before a kickoff happens. Maybe they will uh, down the stretch. I'm trying to be generous because that team seems like they're a bit of shambles at the moment, and I don't really know how you fix that one. The Galaxy don't seem to be in that much stronger of a position, but they're still the Galaxy. They've got Greg Vanny. They've got Chicharito. They'll find a way, I'm guessing. Mm. Are they still the Galaxy, though? Because like both of these teams are kind of mean no, teams dude, at this point. That's a good question. That's a good question. Because you know? I would, I guess, the argument would be, as bad as this probably sounds, and as much as people are not going to like it, are they still the galaxy or is LAFC the galaxy? And that's right. That's a tough one. You're right. I mean, like I th- honestly, if LAFC wins MLS Cup this year, if they're as good as yeah. as I think they are, if they if they win MLS Cup this year, then like the Galaxy are in real danger of turning into the Clippers real fast. And I know that's not a perfect comparison because the Clippers, the Clippers don't have anything close to the, the history that the galaxy have. The galaxy are always going to have that, Mm -hmm. but like it's, it's tough to look at these two teams right now 
and, and say that they're kind of on even footing. Like LAFC are just so completely in the uh, ascendancy. Man. I, I You're still recovering I, from that Clippers comparison. I really you? am. Like, it's just, it's my, my goal in life is never to be like the bar by which other bad things are compared. <laughs> like, like, oh man, he's more of a tailor than a Doyle. It's like, oh no, I don't want to be that. Please, <laughs> please. No, I don't want to be the low bar. No. Uh, well, uh, since you are the high bar, my final question for you, Matt, will be, uh, what have you got going on this weekend? What are, what are you all going to be doing over at MLS Soccer? Oh, I'm going to be uh, chugging energy drinks and keeping awake mm-hmm. for 48 hours so that I could write my, my typical Sunday night column. Uh, for those of you who don't know, every every Sunday night I write uh, kind of our version of, of the Monday morning quarterback type of thing where it just I look at uh, all the games to, to one degree or another. And um, that takes up almost my entire weekend, every weekend from now until December. Oh boy. <laughs> I, well, actually, I was going to ask you that. Like, do you assemble it over the weekend? Like, are you writing little bits and pieces as things happen? Or do you tend to like maybe make some notes and then do the bulk of the writing Saturday night or fr- Sunday Usually night, actually, I, Sunday night? So I, over the past couple of years, I've gotten much better about assembling it as things go over the weekend, because that gives me a little more of a chance to, um, to go back and edit and to maybe uh, rethink some of my analysis and all that in the past though, there, there was like four or five years ago, I would just like watch and then Sunday night would come and I would panic write for about four hours and see what came out. And that was, that was the process for a good couple of years. But um, I think that maybe prematurely aged me a little bit. So you've met, you've moved past the procrastination. There you go. See, we've you, you've uh, you've graduated past Inter Miami status. So congratulations to you. Uh, I applaud you for that, and I applaud you for taking so much time to talk to me about so many different topics. Thank you so much, Matt Doyle. I feel like only you could jump around from topic to topic and still get in some solid references and some solid burns at the same time. So thank you for that. Mm. No, thank you for that. It's a, it's a very great compliment. I'm happy to come back anytime, my friend. All right. Well, we will have you back anytime, uh, and especially when it makes it inconvenient for extra time to schedule you, because I'm sure that we will get priority <laughs> over that. Uh, but until that happens, Matt Doyle, thank you once again. <laughs> 